going to um, work from Matthew chapter 26 and 27 um, this evening, so you might like to turn to that. Um, we'll also be uh, later on turning to another part of the New Testament, but Matthew 26 and 27. Same passage we were looking at this morning, but our interest this evening is to follow through something of the account of Peter rather than Judas, who we were thinking about um, earlier today. You'll find Matthew chapter 26 um, on page 996, that's the uh, part where we'll be beginning to read, page 996 of Matthew chapter 26. Judas is a very problematic character. Trying to get a handle on him and to understand him isn't the easiest thing to understand what he's about and how he comes to play the role he does. Peter, I wouldn't describe as a straightforward person, but he's less problematic than Judas in terms of how we understand what is happening. And what I'd like to do this evening is to highlight some of the background to his experience around the time of the crucifixion and then some lessons that stem from Peter's experience. So before we look at Matthew 26, 27, let's just recap on a few things uh, in the earlier chapters of Matthew's Gospel. In Matthew chapter 14, we find an encounter between Jesus and Peter that is extraordinary, an encounter that is an extraordinary test and challenge of faith. Um, It is the account of Jesus coming to meet the disciples when they're in the boat. And Peter, uh, with this response in Matthew 14, Lord, if it's you, then bid me come and meet you. Tell me to come. Give me the, give me the confidence to come and, and meet you on, on the water. And that's what happens. And you find this pattern with Peter very often uh, recorded for us in the Gospels. And Matthew does this, where Peter starts out, there's, a, there's something, there's an incident, and then there's the need for Peter to be rescued. Uh, or corrected. And it just seems to be a pattern that happens a great deal with Peter. It happens there in Matthew 14 as Jesus has to reach out and grab him as he begins to sink. You see the same kind of pattern in Matthew chapter 16. And that's the account of, uh, particularly from verse 22 on, where Jesus has been saying to the disciples, who do people say that I am? And uh, Peter is the one who says, you are the Christ. And that statement is rich in its uh, meaning and significance, whether Peter, Peter couldn't have fully understood the implications of what he was saying, but he clearly had the beginnings of an insight that was given to him by God. And yet, as Jesus begins to explain to the disciples what that means, what Christ means, um, as opposed to the general expectation of what Messiah means, and Jesus starts to speak about death and being handed over, Peter turns aside and begins to rebuke Jesus begins to sink in a different kind of way this time, very confident kind of way. And then Jesus has to, in turn, rebuke Peter. In Matthew 17 is the account of the transfiguration, when Peter is with Jesus along with James and John up the mountain. And again, Peter is ready to go, and he's ready to respond to what he's witnessing here with fantastic enthusiasm. And again, he needs to be rescued from his own approach to things and needs to be pulled back a little bit. Um, as Jesus does in that particular situation. There's an interesting and quite intimate account in Matthew 17 from verse 24 on of Jesus and Peter. And it's the issue of the temple tax where people were getting uh, at Peter about Jesus. And uh, when Peter comes into the house uh, to speak with Jesus, it must have been written all over his face. I think 
the transparency of the relationship between Jesus and Peter must have been immense because uh, written all over his face, I think, is the issue, his anxiety and his concern. And Jesus picks up the conversation, first of all, this whole business about, you know, what's the right thing to do? Um, give the temple tax, uh, pay it if you have to. And there's a, there's a very interesting little incident there where Peter's stress is relieved by Jesus, by Jesus dealing with the issue and rescuing him from his sense of being stressed about the accusations. In Matthew 19, we find Peter listening attentively to what Jesus has to say and then saying to Jesus, yeah, but we have left everything to follow you, so what's going to happen to us? And Peter just needing that being rescued thing again, being rescued from a sense of anxiety about the implications of the decisions that he has made. So there are many insights in Matthew's Gospel, and it's Matthew's Gospel we've been focusing on mainly Um, over the last number of months, particularly on Sunday mornings, uh, many insights about Peter. And there is this kind of pattern of enthusiasm, this kind of pattern of insight, profound insight, and the needing to be rescued. And you see that worked out again here in Matthew chapter 26. Um, I want to sort of talk through what is happening here, but if you turn to Matthew 26 and verse 20, it will set the context for us. This is at the Passover And the evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve, and while they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, Surely not I, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely not I, Rabbi. And Jesus answered, Yes, it is you. And while they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, giving thanks, and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is part of the context and the setting for all that's going to happen in Peter's experience in the next few hours. And what happens in Matthew 26 and 27 is condensed into a few hours of Jesus' life uh, as his crucifixion approaches. And here we have this very interesting situation where there is a fairly open discussion uh, between Jesus and the disciples about betrayal. And if it sounds bizarre to you that this should be an open discussion, um, just think about what's been happening in the week preceding this. For three years they have been travelling throughout Judea and Galilee and the other regions. For three years Jesus has been establishing in his teaching the concept of the kingdom of God. For three years he's been taking on the religious authorities. For three years he's been breaking many of the religious rules. And they've come into Jerusalem on this particular occasion, on this particular week, and the tension is higher than ever. And the disciples know full well that there is a debate and a discussion going on amongst the hierarchy within Jerusalem as to what they're going to do with Jesus. The entry into Jerusalem and all the passion that that stirred in the community and amongst the religious leaders. The the cleansing of the temple incident and the confrontation that that represented with the authorities. The the teaching in the temple, do you remember that passage we looked at one Sunday morning where group after group of the religious leaders uh, come to take Jesus on and each one walks away um, defeated in their their attempt to publicly humiliate him or publicly uh, destroy him. 
And the tension is clearly building. And that's part of the background of what is happening as they're in Jerusalem celebrating this Passover. So the idea that there's going to be a problem is not that strange. And it shouldn't really be that surprising. And their response to it, and and yes, they know people are out to get Jesus. They know that that's the agenda at this particular time. And they can understand, maybe in human terms, Jesus' concern that one of them may be involved in it. But they're all making their protest. It won't be me. So in one sense, it's not a strange conversation to be taking place. The tensions are so high. The stakes are so high. That it's perfectly reasonable. And yet everyone is declaring it won't be me. So in verse 31 we read that as they have sung a hymn. Which would have been one of the Psalms. Probably at this stage Psalm 118. um, They went out to the Mount of Olives. So they're starting to leave the city. They're starting to go out. The city will be busy. It will be packed full of people. Maybe twice as many people as normally live in the city because it's Passover time. They'll work their way down through the streets, which will be full, as many of those cities are. At night time, they seem to come to life. People will be sitting out eating, trading, talking, doing whatever in the cool of the evening. They're making their way down, out through the city gates and down through the valley and beginning to head up to the Mount of Olives. And as they're walking, Jesus tells them, verse 31, this very night, you will all fall away on account of me. For it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. I'm not sure that they have any real concept of what Jesus means about after I have risen. But look at what happens in verse 33. Peter replies. He steps out of the boat. He makes the bold declaration. Even if all fall away on account of you. And this is the second time we've had this conversation within recent hours. Even if all fall away on account of you. And Peter's open to the possibility that there is a confrontation of some kind coming that's going to stretch the loyalty. I never will. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, this very night, before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter steps out of the boat again, full of confidence. Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And as they're walking along, the conversation is shared by everyone and it tells us and all the other disciples said the same. When you get to verse 37 and verse 38, they have come out through the city. This conversation has taken place. They have arrived in the garden known as the Garden of Gethsemane, an olive grove. Some of the disciples are left sitting around the gate area or wherever it was. And verse 37 says, He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. What a remarkably intimate moment. It's always very difficult emotionally when someone you greatly respect, someone you consider to be a very strong person, begins to unburden to you or in front of you or in your company. It may be someone you have respected as a parent and they're under stress for some reason or other and they begin to unburden themselves and to break down. It's difficult to handle. It may be a mutual friend that you greatly respect and in a conversation they begin to unburden themselves And you feel the emotion and the strength of that. It's very difficult to handle. So here is Peter. And we've had two conversations about the tension of this night. 
We've had two conversations about what, is, what lies ahead. There's something that lies ahead. We've had two conversations that have to do with falling away or betraying or things falling apart and the great project of the kingdom of heaven disappearing. And we have the leader, Jesus, the strong one, who seems to be beginning to need to unburden himself. What sort of dynamic does that create for these men? As they sit together, as they talk together, I am sure that Peter prayed for him. I am sure that Peter was anxious about Jesus as Jesus leaves the three of them and goes further on into the garden. I'm sure that as they prayed, they prayed to God that there would be no reverse of what has been happening. No reverse of this movement forward, this challenge, this presentation of the kingdom of heaven. But clearly, it's late in the evening. They've enjoyed a good meal. They've walked through the night air. They're tired. And even with all of that passion, they doze. Verse 40, Jesus comes back to them. Clearly overwhelmed. And Peter is addressed directly by Jesus in verse 40. Could you men not keep watch with me one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. And again he goes away, and again they, they fall asleep. Verse 43 and verse 55. The situation is repeated. So how does Peter feel? When there is a great crowd gathering at the gate of the garden. When Judas, who they now notice, didn't come back to join them for the singing of the hymns at the end of the Passover and was not part of their company as they walked down through from the city into the valley and up into the olive grove in Gethsemane. What's going through Peter's mind and the rest of them at this particular point as the garden door opens and Judas is there and the torches are burning and the soldiers are there and the panic begins to set in and the sickness deep in their stomach begins to settle as they realize that they're in trouble. Why is Peter so quick with the sword? Matthew doesn't name him as the one with the sword, but he refers to the incident there in verse 51. But we know from John it was, Ma it was Peter himself. Was his speed with the sword a reaction to the failure to pray? Was his speed with the sword to attack an outworking of a sense of guilt and defeat? Was he trying to put right the situation and yet Jesus is taken off by Judas and the others to the home of the high priest in Jerusalem. And we know that Peter, along with another, probably John, followed at a distance. So by verse 69 of the passage on the next page, Peter is sitting in the courtyard of the high priest's home. It seems to me that Peter doesn't actually lack courage, whatever else he may lack. He's taken a very risky move here and following at a distance, as John tells us. He has come right into the courtyard. In fact, we know from John's account that the, the disciple who was known to the high priest went in and had to come back to get the gate opened to let Peter in. So he's been hanging around at the gate. He's been brought in specially. And the girl who addresses him here about being with Jesus 
is the one who was on duty and presumably let them in, as John tells us in John 18. And the girl says, you were with Jesus of Galilee. And Peter denies it. Luke gives us a bit more of the background, as does Mark. Their little snippets of information allow us to know that Peter was sitting near a fire in the courtyard and the woman, the girl, looked closely at him. If you can just imagine the face lit up, silhouetted by the fire that people are keeping themselves warm around. And in verse 70, it says, I don't know what you're talking about. In verse 71, another girl, some imply it was the same one, comes. You get the impression that there's conversation going on in the courtyard about Peter. And the girls are not going to let up. So they come back for a second look. And they say to a bigger community this time, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He's one of them. And it's hardly surprising because I can't imagine that Peter tried to hide himself when Jesus entered Jerusalem a week before. I don't imagine Peter was trying to hide himself when Jesus was clearing the temple because Peter presumably thought that this was a wonderful move. I can't imagine that Peter was scurrying to hide himself when Jesus took on the religious leaders. He would be well known. He's been the talk. Jesus has been the talk of the high priest's household, including the servant girls. And all his group would be well known. But verse 72, Jesus says, or Peter says, I don't know the man. Now how does he do that? How does he have the courage to be there? How does he have the courage to be in the courtyard of the chief priest when Jesus is being tried and yet deny Jesus completely? I think it was just the tension of the situation. I'm sure that the sense of personal danger means that he doesn't notice that what he's doing is exactly what Jesus prophesied he would do. Verse 73, he's clearly becoming the focus of attention. Didn't I see you at the olive grove, one relative of the man who had his ear cut off says in John 18. Your accent gives you away. And with curses and swearing, he says, I don't know the man. And verse 75, then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. What a powerful verse. What a great tragedy. And Peter will play no more role in Matthew's gospel. He will get a mention in one verse in Mark and Luke. He will feature a great deal more in John, but as far as Matthew is concerned, we are finished with Peter and his experiences. So what do we have in Matthew and what do we make of it? What we have is someone who is an eyewitness of the suffering of Jesus in a very dangerous situation. I don't know whether you've ever been in dangerous situations or situations that you have felt under threat. I've witnessed a few, like being many years ago caught up in a riot situation or standing in the middle of what might have become a confrontation. It's a very frightening thing, and you keep considering two things. You're you're conscious of your own safety, but you're conscious of what's going on around you. 
And Peter was in that kind of situation, conscious of what was going on around him, but conscious of the danger to himself. He was an eyewitness of what was going on in the room nearby, but he felt the terror and he felt the threat. It had a profound impact on his life. And he's an eyewitness of the situation, but he experiences something of the danger of it and is a victim of that danger. So what we have, first of all, is an eyewitness in a very dangerous situation. Secondly, clearly, we have failure. Verse 75 is one of the most powerful verses in the whole of Matthew's Gospel. Peter remembered what Jesus had said when he heard the cock crow and he went outside and he wept bitterly. I'm sure he wept at the sight of what was happening in the chief priest's house. I'm sure he wept at the deep sense of injustice but I'm sure he was heartbroken at his own response and behavior. How do you deal with that? How would you have dealt with it? How would I have dealt with it? Yet we have an eyewitness of the suffering in a very dangerous situation. We have failure and we also have a deep sense of dejection. All the talk about leading others, all the talk about being Peter, the rock. All the leadership in which Peter has been involved with Jesus. It must have felt to Peter at that moment that he had just blown the lot. And if you've ever been in that situation where you felt you've just blown everything, it's very, very hard to recover. It's very hard to climb out of a hole that you've dug for yourself, which is steep sides. As I think about all of this, I'm aware of how little we do know about what happened with Peter in the, in the hours immediately afterwards. And I'm always inquisitive about these things. I would just love to know. And I have to watch the old imagination because it would be very easy to try and write a script that isn't there. And I can see the attraction of other Gospels. This morning we were thinking, amongst other things, about this uh, publication of the Gospel of Judas. And I have a copy here of the translated fragment of the Gospel of Peter. Because there is a gospel of Peter as well. There's loads of these things. I often wonder too when these will be published. Maybe next Easter we'll get the gospel of Peter. And another big media thing about another book that proves that Jesus really wasn't the son of God. But it's a gospel that fills in some of the blanks. It's a gospel with a different theological agenda. It's a gospel that's very anti-Jewish because it exonerates Pilate completely from any responsibility. And it's a gospel that doesn't really believe that Jesus was truly human and truly divine, and that comes through in the context of it. But some of the blanks, here's Peter in the Gospel of Peter. Then the Jews and elders and priests, having come to know how much wrong they had done themselves, began to beat themselves and say, Woe to our sins! The judgment has approached at the end of Jerusalem. But I with the companions was sorrowful, and having been wounded in spirit, we were in hiding. For we were sought after by them as wrongdoers and as wishing to set fire to the temple. In addition to all these things, we were fasting and we were sitting morning and weeping night and day until the Sabbath. Well, I don't know whether that's what they were doing or not, but you can just imagine how it would fill in some of the blanks. But the blanks aren't really that important. What happened in those next few hours doesn't really matter. The fact that we don't know and may never know isn't the most important thing because what we do discover is that Peter becomes that rock in the church. 
Peter fulfills that role that God had for him. And those three issues, the experience of suffering and watching it in a dangerous situation, the experience of failure and the experience of dejection seem to me to be things that Peter later addresses very fully in his own life and in his ministry to other people. So turn with me to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2. You'll find it in the church editions of the Bible on page 1218. Because if Peter was in a dangerous situation that night in the courtyard of the high priest, it certainly wasn't the last dangerous situation he was going to be in. In fact, he was going to be in very many dangerous situations. And many of the people who became Christians through his ministry were to find themselves in dangerous and difficult situations. And the letter that he writes, which we have here as First Peter, is a letter that is written to people who are suffering or are going to suffer. There are people who are living in dangerous situations. People who were once part of a community, part of a city, part of a family, who now find themselves as aliens and strangers in the world because they have stepped outside the way life used to be and the conventions of their society and the religion of their day and have become followers of Jesus Christ. And here you see Peter apply all the lessons that he learned from that very difficult set of circumstances. Look at what he says in verse 21 of 1 Peter chapter 2. He says to the Christians, To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter was an eyewitness of these sufferings in a very dangerous situation. He's writing to people, and he himself has experienced danger and threat and difficult circumstances. But he has been able to take what he witnessed in the way in which Jesus conducted himself, and the way in which he entrusted himself to the Father's care, and to learn from it. And all of that experience of what he witnessed, and what he felt in that circumstance, has gone to work by the Spirit of God in Peter's life. And Peter now understands that this is the way life is for many people. And it's going to be the way life will be for many people who choose to follow Jesus Christ who set themselves outside of the normal set of relationships or the normal way of thinking within their families or their societies or whatever and find themselves in danger. And he has learned and applying those lessons. You do what Jesus did, not what I did. You do what Jesus did and you take what's coming, but you entrust yourself to him who judges justly because he always deals fairly. That whole business about failure, if you look at chapter 3 and what he has to say from verse 13, when he's asked about his knowledge of Jesus, when the finger is pointed, you're with him, you're one of them. When the comment is made, you're a Galilean, your accent gives you away. And, And his response is to swear and to curse and to say he doesn't know the man. 
What does he learn from all of that? Verse 13 of 1 Peter 3, Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened, but in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. What has he learned from his cursing and swearing in his response to the question, Are you not one of them? Do you not know Jesus? He's learned that it's a good thing to suffer for doing good, but it's important to be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within you. And what about the whole business of dejection? The whole business of feeling that you've dug yourself into such a deep hole that there's no way out of it. What has he got to say on that? 1 Peter chapter 5, a few pages over. Very near the end, in verse 10. As he's summarizing all his teaching to these people who live in difficult and stressful situations. He says to them, And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Here's a man who knew what it was to fail, what it was to be dejected, what it was to feel that everything that had been expected about him had been destroyed by his own failure, his own denial of Jesus, who is able to speak about how God fulfills his purposes through and for his people and can restore and make them strong, firm and steadfast. Matthew doesn't need to tell us any more about Matthew, about Peter at this particular juncture. The history of the church tells it. Peter's ministry amongst the Christians in the early church speaks for itself. It fills in all the gaps that this person who witnessed suffering in a very dangerous situation was able to learn from it and to apply the principles that he saw there despite his own failure. This person who failed was able to learn the lesson and learn what it means to be able to give an expression for the hope that you have and not to be afraid to do that. This person who must have been utterly destroyed and dejected as he weeps bitterly is the person who can say with confidence that God himself will restore and make you strong, firm and steadfast. If you can identify with Peter at any level, if you can identify with the fear and anxiety of watching things go badly wrong and feeling threatened and afraid of a situation, if you can identify with the experience of failure as a Christian or as a person, morally, spiritually, if you're the kind of person who can in any way identify with that sense of dejection which says, I have dug such a deep hole here, there is no way out again, then hear what Peter has to say as he writes in First Peter. He has been there every step of the way before you. And here is his advice. Here is his instruction. Here is his encouragement. 
that God is greater than our fears and our weaknesses. That his grace is far greater than our shame and our disgrace. And that his power knows no limit for those who are willing to put themselves at his disposal. Whatever you experience in your life at present, whatever you carry from the past, whatever you will encounter in the future, remember Peter and remember how God was at work in him.